Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs and where we push the limits of our understanding. We are Joe Landry and Lori Olford. And today our topic is one that is perhaps a little inconspicuous to those who are not already UFO enthusiasts, and that is Rendlesham Forest in England. So hi there, Lori. How are you? I'm doing well, Joe. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Uh, we made it through another Halloween. And, you know, I'm surprised I didn't see more of this uh, particular costume last year when COVID was still on the rise. You know, I'm surprised it wasn't more popular last year. And that is the Plague Doctor. Uh, you know what that is, don't you? No, yeah. Yeah, that uh, is that Black Mask dude, right? The uh, yeah. one with the bird beak or whatever. <laughs> that was worn during the uh, bubonic plague, right? Back, back when that happened in the Middle Ages. Creepy looking thing. Right. It, it makes you think of something like a steampunk outfit. So the, the big part of the mask was actually used to hold fragrant flowers and aromatic herbs so that the so-called doctor wouldn't have to smell the foul stenches of infected people. And the belief back then was that it was the smell of sick people and the smell of dead people that made you contract the disease. They called it bad air. And it was thought that by keeping yourself from smelling it, you would be prevented from getting the plague. Anyway, with the uh, pandemic going on now you would think more people would have a a new interest in dressing up as that for halloween yeah, yeah i can see that uh, i i know what you mean there uh as like a creative way to make a statement about covid <laughs> but i don't really think that the, the plague doctor mask is what is scary to most people though i think what is scary now is uh that clown pennywise from it now that's a scary costume <laughs> You know, I, I, I think that when I was a kid, I, uh, I remember seeing clowns and I did not like them, especially when I went to the circus. I mean, those things freaked me out. Clowns. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I, I actually think the circus might be the worst place to see them. And there's really nothing scarier than a clown. And I'm sure there are a lot of folks out there who think the same thing. Uh, you do not want to see a clown walking around out there, no matter where you are, especially Pennywise. Uh, that's a real nightmare. I mean, worse than the plague doctor. Right, of course. Now, we've uh, said before that uh, Roswell has affected everyone's life, whether or not they even know it and whether or not they even believe in UFOs. But Reynoldson Forest is an incident that may also have had a similarly equally important impact on the world, even if it is not as well known. That being because it is a credible report in fairly recent time of a close encounter with U.S. military personnel. So we actually, uh, who were actually on duty at the time. Yeah, and it revolves around the sightings of strange phenomena in the region of uh, Suffolk, uh, which is about 100 or so miles northeast of London. And these are usually seen as orbs of light that ascend up into the sky and descend down to the ground. To this day, it is a UFO hotspot in England, much like how Nevada is a UFO hotspot in the United States. Well, most of us have heard about Roswell, but not as many uh, people know about the Rendlesham Forest incident, which occurred only about 40 years ago. Now, uh, there indeed have been many sightings in this area, but the most famous one occurred on December 26, 1980. At the time, the U.S. military personnel were stationed at RAF Bentwaters, and they are said to have observed lights moving out in the forest, which was to the south of the base. 
Now, there was another base several miles away, RF or RAF uh, Woodbridge, and both British and American airmen there also saw the solder lights. Supposedly, it was here that the security forces at the gate noticed a brightly lit object had descended into Rendlesham Forest, and they thought it may have been a downed aircraft. Right. So they made the appropriate notifications through their chain of command that something may have crashed in the forest. And soon a small team was assembled to go investigate it. Now, this was about three o'clock in the morning. And Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, who at the time was the deputy commander of the installation, was informed. And he, too, went out to see what was out there as it was giving off a pretty powerful illumination while it was stationary on the ground. Uh, This had to seem quite strange to the airmen as it didn't seem like the fire from a burning wreckage, but just like the brilliance of some kind of artificial lighting. Right. So Halt goes out there with two sergeants with the the base security forces, uh, Jim Penniston and John Burroughs. When they reach the object, which is about half a mile from the base, they see that it is metallic and triangular, and it's about nine feet by six feet uh, that was glowing blue and yellow. But as they get closer to it, it moves away from them, and they can hear nearby livestock going crazy. However, in a statement given by Jim Penniston, he claimed to have touched the hole to have then received some sort of binary code of ones and zeros and a sort of flashbulb memory recall, which he later wrote down in his his notebook. Now, sometime after this, uh, he had the code deciphered into an uh, alphanumeric correlation that laid out a message. And that message read, exploration of humanity continues for planetary advance. And there were numbers that later seemed to be transposed to latitude and longitude coordinates of a lost island called High Brazil, uh, which is off the west coast of Ireland. According to a blog published in areawidenews.com by Britt Berquist, uh, there were also a remaining six sets of numbers that were found to be transposed to coordinates of specific sites in South America, Ch- uh, Central America, China, and Greece, as well as Sedona, Arizona, and Giza Plateau in Egypt. And now, according to an article by David Clark titled Rendlesham Analysis 17, uh, was retrieved on July 18th, 2008. It was a few years after this, in 1983, that Holt's official memo was made available to the public. It was dated January 13th, 1981, which was about two weeks after the incident, and there are believed to be some inconsistencies in it with respect to the date and time sequence of events. And in it, he discloses what he had had been encountered and uh, said on the next day that depressions were found in the ground where the object was seen. The memo says that the ground was checked for beta and gamma radiation and that peak readings were found in the depressions. It is also suggested that he obtained statements from the radar operators uh, who worked at uh, RAF Bentwaters in which they are said to have monitored an unknown uh, object traveling about 60 uh, miles in two or three seconds, uh, moving extremely fast. Yeah, that's really fast. (laughs) And they said it went off the scope. And then it came back again. And, and they noticed that it stopped in the proximity of the location of a water tower. At this point, they were able to see it through the windows and they watched it go into the forest. Uh, it was also tracked at another base in England, RAF uh, Wadisham, in which a lost uh, bogey 
went out of electronic detection in the proximity of Rendlesham. Yeah, so about Peniston's binary message, it's, it's a very peculiar thing. It seems like it was sort of burned into his memory like a f- software file, and the whole idea of it has come under vehement criticism from skeptics as, as being a hoax. But let's talk about it. Uh, these coordinates of high Brazil is not is a little perplexing um, since it's really just a mythical place. It doesn't actually exist per se, at least not today. It may have centuries ago out in the Atlantic Ocean, as it does appear on various medieval nautical charts. But there is no actual account of anyone ever being there. According to Irish legend, it was always covered in mist and would only be visible once every seven years. So does this have a possible extraterrestrial association? Well, maybe. Uh, we discussed the mystery of Atlantis uh, once before, how its exact location is highly debated, and how it may have been a civilization on Earth in which the Anunnaki dwelt thousands and thousands of years ago. So it's possible that High Brazil is just a variant story of Atlantis. If indeed the lost continent of Atlantis and any remnant legend that is tied to it has a relation to tradition of the ancient gods or the ancient peoples, then the appearance of its coordinates impressed into Peniston's mental imagery would be oddly significant, as it would be a clue of an alien past on the Earth. And the other global coordinates that are part of his message would seem to also have a connection with extraterrestrial activity or what one might simply label as paranormal activity. It is strange that we find this correspondence between his message and these points on the globe as they follow along what are said by some mystics, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, to be ley lines on the earth. And these ley lines are thought to connect energy vortices that are present in places where, typically speaking, Weird things have been manifested throughout human history, places like Giza, Egypt, um, Delphi, Greece, Mahojandero, India, Teotihuacan, Mexico, and yes, even Sedona, Arizona, and supposedly wherever High Brazil was located out in the Atlantic. So the uncanny connection being made here is rather tantalizing, I, I do have to say. Yeah, I agree. Uh, well, the Renaissance Forest incident is yet another reason why we should not believe the government when it comes to UFO encounters. I'll say that Uh, debunkers tried to claim that it was caused by nothing more than a nearby lighthouse. At first, the lighthouse claim seems to be legit, but it falls short when collected as part of the facts with the rest of the story. Now, strange lights via lighthouse. Sure. I mean, I can see that, right? (laughs) Um, A a UFO with Egyptian type hieroglyphs on it. Touchdown in a small forest middle caused by a lighthouse? I don't think so. Um, in 1983, the newspaper, News of the World, ran a cover story which read, UFO lands in Suffolk, and that's official. It then began the article by saying, a UFO has landed in Britain, and that staggering fact has been officially confirmed. Yeah, now, of course, there are those who provide alternative explanations to the Rendlesham incident. Uh, According to a news page by the BBC dated uh, December 26, uh, 2020, not even a year ago, one of the most common debunk claims is that the lights that were seen by the airmen or other people were caused by the Orphanage Lighthouse some five miles away from the forest, and it was pretty bright. Uh, Other claims are that it was a crashed Soviet spy satellite, And some say it was nothing more than a meteorite that that crashed onto the ground. But those are not 
real well supported either, particularly the notion that the White House is what was causing all the melee. You know, the White House had been in Suffolk since 1792, and everyone in that area would certainly be familiar with it and unperturbed by it. The flashing light coming from the from it would uh, have been a regular thing, and people would have been able to realize immediately if the lights seen in the forest were all associated with the White House. So it's it's not a very strong argument. No, it's certainly not. Um, this was not their first night on duty. They they had been stationed there for quite some time, and they would have known about the Orfordness uh, lighthouse. The thing they they were describing wasn't from a bright light some five miles away. It was right there in the forest, at actual relatively close uh, to the uh, east gate where they they were sentried. The lighthouse explanation falls pretty short of what is needed to debunk uh, statements like this. And oddly, it seems that the British Ministry of Defense uh, ceased any further investigation due to insufficient evidence to believe that a security threat uh, actually existed. Um, The logs from the Suffolk Police Bureau apparently showed that there were reports of aerial lights seen over Rendlesham Forest with no sign of an object landing there. Uh, Also, the Royal Air Force interviews of its people didn't bring forth much of anything fruitful. So according to them, there was uh, no security threat. There was nothing recovered and nothing that anybody had actually touched. And it doesn't seem like they gave very much uh, consideration to whatever Halt, Penniston, and Burroughs may have had to say. All right. Uh, There's also a rumor that the UK has its own classified research and development uh, facility, like an Area 51 of their own. And it's at a former RAF base called uh, Rudlow Manor in in Wiltshire. It's been closed down since 2000, but it is still under extraordinarily uh, high security. Uh, Public access is uh, actually not allowed there. Yes, and and that is quite unusual for a closed installation. Uh, Mm -hmm. Usually public access is granted once they're closed. So this is obvious. uh, It's obvious that something is still going on there and that it's not truly closed at all. Could it be that alien technology is is being reverse engineered there, as is alleged to be happening out at the Nellis uh, Air Force Base complex in Nevada? Perhaps just like how it is said that the Roswell craft was secretly taken to Area 51, that in a similar way, similar way, the Rendlesham craft was secretly taken to Rudlow Manor for the same purpose. Yeah, I could see that. Um, it's important that we don't quickly lash out and deny things right away. Uh, we should at least consider the possibility of a government cover-up as we do know that classified programs are concealed from us and we are denied access to them. Maybe the reason people are quick to deny this possibility is because of the fear of the unknown. It goes against the traditional norm of things in our society. So fear is a knee-jerk reaction to such things which makes people go into denial or uh, or so, so as to cloak their feelings and make themselves feel better, uh, staking the claim that this incident is a hoax. I think it is necessary to have an open mind about these kinds of things, in the very least, uh, to just look at all the facts surrounding them, right? Yeah, I agree. So now these hieroglyphs, uh, Penniston actually said he saw them on the hull of the object. Um, how did he get close enough to see them? Uh, did, did he make any drawings of them? Of course, we know that the connotation here with the hieroglyphs is the ancient astronaut parallel to the hieroglyphics uh, of the ancient uh, Egyptian civilization from thousands of years ago. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat 
podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. I believe that Penniston claimed that the symbols appeared to be similar to Egyptian uh, hieroglyphs, not that they actually were. Um, they were symbols that he associated to something he knew resembled them, i.e. the, you know, the hieroglyphics. And I believe he went under, um, and I believe he went under uh, hypnosis to recall more about the event. Um, it was here that he claimed that the idea was impressed upon him that the craft was actually from the future, and that it was from our descendants, not aliens. Now, if there were Egyptian uh, hieroglyphics on it, then it's possible that this craft may have belonged to an Egyptian god, uh, which. Uh, we can speculate from our previous discussions, maybe an ancient astronaut, uh, perhaps one who came out of some uh, a sort of uh, space-time portal in the past. I mean, the, the craft itself may even have, have been like a drone of some kind um, and, and not even occupied by a living being, for all we know. Uh, since we're on the topic of hieroglyphs, uh, there are intriguing ones dedicated to city first that were discovered in the temple in, in uh, Abydos. Um, um, among them are ones that look like a helicopter, a tank, a submarine, an airplane, and of course, Luke Skywalker's land speeder. It <laughs> <Of course>. um, <laughs> doesn't it though? <laughs> it does. Um, yeah. Uh, they are called the uh, helicopter hieroglyphs, and some Egyptomolo- uh, Egyptologists believe that they. They were put there because these types of crafts were seen back then and maybe used by their gods slash aliens. I, I mean, maybe maybe two I'm interested about, but man, it is hard not to see a helicopter on that slab. Um, now, there are some out there claiming to debunk the helicopter hieroglyphs, and, and we'll cover that in a, in a lot more when we do an episode um, on who may actually have built the pyramids. Certainly. So could an air Force commanding officer and two Air Force security forces NCOs concoct such an idea of what was seen at Rendlesham Forest. Uh, any inductive thinking person would say, of course, of course they could make it up. They could make the whole thing up. But did they? And that's where we need where we need to examine the, the facts. So, Lori, you actually had the opportunity to meet Charles Holt and Jim Burroughs. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I met the two of them at the International UFO Congress in Scottsdale back in uh, 2018, I believe it was. Uh, Jim Burroughs didn't have much to say during our conversation while he was waiting to be interviewed by a radio station that was set up next to my booth. Now, I did uh, hear him and Nick Pope having a heated conversation, uh, but it was loud in the area. So, um, But I I don't know what what exactly was was said or what the... uh, argument was about <laughs> yeah I, uh, nick pope uh, he, he co-authored a book with penniston and burroughs uh, titled encounter in rendlesham forest uh, many of you i'm sure have seen him on ancient aliens he's a british journalist who once worked for the ministry of defense in the uk and he has been pretty active in ufo studies and the three of them travel around the world and give presentations on 
the Randolph Shem incident. Right. Now, with Charles Holt, um, I talked a little more at length and I asked him quite you know, pointedly if uh, that whole event really did take place as it has been told. And he was sincere in saying yes. So, you know, uh, I, I have 22 years total in law enforcement now with uh, four to five of those years as a detective. And I'm pretty good at, uh, at not I mean suit my own horn here at <laughs> being able to tell when someone is lying to me. Um, I've been through interview and interrogation classes, and I'm certain uh, he was not lying. He wasn't given off the the cues that indicate such. Um, just like I knew my brother-in-law wasn't uh, lying when he told me about his encounter. And that one occurred uh, back uh, sometime in the 70s. Um, it was something that he had kept secret for over 40 years. Uh, he and his friend were talking inside his house when they heard a strange buzzing or humming noise outside the home. Um, When they went outside to investigate, there it was, he said. It was only about 50 feet away. It was like a disc-shaped UFO was hovering over the house, and he could see the, as he put it, little guys inside uh, the craft, like through the lights. Um, He he couldn't even think of the names. We refer to them as, until I told them, you mean the aliens? <laughs> and to which he said, you know, something to the effect of, yes, the, the gray looking ones. Now, I told this story in our episode about the uh, ancient UFOs, you know, first contacts and abductions from almost six months ago now. If you guys get a chance, check check our fourth episode of the season out um, and listen to it. Um, for what he mentioned, it sounded like, or from what he mentioned, it sounded like uh, an abduction in which he experienced the perplexity of uh, mixing time or missing time. Right. I've gone through those classes too, uh, interview and interrogation. And uh, there there are certain behavioral tics, uh, which are psychophysical indicators, you, you know, the eyes shifting, the changes in voice timbre, the arm and leg fidgeting, things like that. But even those are not very definitive in determining if you know, somebody is lying uh, or being uh, false or, um, or deliberately being false. What's more telling is the intrinsic structure of the account. Do the important details check out and do they change with each telling of the tale, you know, in terms of the who, when and where? Uh, so if there are inconsistencies, you know, they could be lies or they could just be memory lapses, which are quite common. Uh, they could even be false memories, uh, or they can be cognitive dissonances, which are uh, the, like a refusal uh, for a, per- a, a person to accept certain information because it doesn't match up with preconceived ideas and beliefs. Uh, uh, those are possibilities that, that cannot be ruled out. And, but for them to tell a lie, there also needs to be a, a motivation or a material need, something to be gained from it, such as uh, keeping your freedom. Um, and not getting arrested, that would be a need and a motivation, uh, no doubt. But if there is no impetus to lie, it raises the question of why do it just for the sake of doing it? Now, of course, the desire for fame and notoriety uh, can be a factor to compel someone to uh, fabricate and create a story or exaggerate a story. And that definitely could serve as as a psychic need for that person, no doubt. Yeah, and there are those who are pathological liars. Uh, they just can't help but tell fibs. However, with uh, with those people, it is usually uh, pretty easy to quickly show the flaws in their statements and then determine that they're lying. 
and they do it perpetually. Uh, then uh, they're never uh, truth tellers, but but guys like Halt and you know, Peniston, uh, they they've made entire careers out of honesty and reliability. So you have to ask, why would they not insist on what they saw as being real if they did not think they had good reason to do so? To take such a position with good cause is out of character uh, for them. And I I don't believe they actually became millionaires or anything over this either. Mm, not to my knowledge. Right. So uh, to the pathological liar, the difference between telling the truth and telling a lie is of no moral consequence as long as it brings the desired outcome. The end justifies the means. So for, for them, they, they are almost unable to even know the difference between truth and falsehood as long as whatever is stated serves their purpose. It's like another popular quip uh, that's been said. It's not a lie as long as you believe it is true. <laughs> right. But people also find a sort of comfort in their personal beliefs, whatever they may be. Like what George uh, Bernard Shaw once said, all truths at one time were considered to be blasphemy. Uh, they sometimes show resistance to accepting the validity of a personal experience that contradicts their own established worldview, especially when it may challenge their religion in some way. You know, I one time had the chance to listen to uh, Travis Walton speak at a conference. Now, he is the character subject from the story Fire in the Sky, the movie they made. Um, and his retelling of it is pretty amazing as he gives considerable detail into his abduction experience. Now, you can sense the frustration in this man's voice knowing that people are trying to debunk his experience. It's clearly something very deep and personal to him. In much the same way, an evangelical person holds dear the testimony they may have of how they came to know Jesus as their Savior. Uh, the urge for some to debunk such stories or any sort of evidence that that supports the existence of aliens um, may come from, from this, that uh, psychological conflict in which people tend to almost exhibit an, an attack stance, uh, almost like it engages our fight or flight instinct. And it has a lot to do with the fear of the unknown. Uh, people are afraid that aliens may very well exist. So they try to find ways to convince themselves that it is impossible to be believed. So the use of ridicule against it may very well help them feel more assured that it can't be true. It makes them feel better about what they were taught while they were growing up. It's like I said, it's comforting to be sure of your beliefs, at least for now. Sure. And we both understand that belief does not equal truth, at least not truth through knowledge that is proven through facts and evidence. Uh, you know that I tend to be more of a skeptic and more of an agnostic when it comes to uh, approaching mysterious enigma and the supernatural and the spiritual. And, and I'm reminded of that adage of when you hear opposing arguments for a case or for a theory in which there is a lack of evidence to substantiate either side, that the truth is usually somewhere in between the two sides. So attempts to debunk are fine, but they must be done with methodology that is at least as sound and as reasonable and as logical as the initial claim. The problem with many conspiracy theories or debunk theories is that they provide inadequate evidence and are thus founded on ad hoc explanations in which the facts are still not demonstrated but are only assumed from how they support a certain proposition. So it's important to guard against the argument from the ignorance or the argument from the incredulity uh, in, in which someone accepts or rejects an idea because they cannot possibly understand 
or believe it could be any other way. So I like to use the principle of Occam's razor, which is heuristic in developing cognitive models like this. And it's important to note that it's only a rule of thumb. It's not a substitute for critical thinking. It basically says that when things get overly convoluted or overly elaborated and, and overly complicated, that it's the simplest explanation that is usually the correct one. Now, that's not a guarantee for the answer. It's, it's, it's not a, a short shot way to find it, the, the answer to the problem. It's merely a, a mental shortcut to examine the, all the totality of the facts. So I think it's safe to presume that these guys did encounter something at Rendlesham Forest that they didn't recognize or didn't comprehend. And, and with no physical evidence available at this time to be evaluated, the interpreted versions become told and retold through witness statements, some of which are firsthand and some of which are secondhand and some of which are thirdhand and, and so on. Of course, uh, all the measures that have been taken for the sake of government classification that's been kind of, you know, used to get into the way of doing any kind of investigation. Uh, this kind of information certainly is confounded um, by normal attempts to investigate it. I mean, in other words, the government makes it harder for us to even to find out, you know, even into the normal course of inquiry. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's well stated. I, I mean, we know that the U.S. military was quick to put a lid on the Roswell crash, and they and the British military were quick to do the same with Rindlesham. These men, Halt, Penniston, and Burroughs, uh, are reliable witnesses with top secret clearances. Now, Colonel Holt actually attempted to debunk his own testimony, but he was unable to. Their statements are reliable and intrinsically are uh, uh, they are consistent. Um, some have tried to say that uh, Penniston's notebook may have been fabricated and it did not have any binary code listed down when it was shown on TV. Uh, some have claimed that the first page had wrong dates on it. However, if you closely look at the notebook, you can see he's he's not on the first page and he is still flipping through it. You have to remember that his notebook was compiled over a period of time. Uh, so there may be errors in the dates and times if it was transcribed at a later time. But what he recalls about the binary code seems to be uh, consistent with what is written down in the notebook. Now, in an article by Sean Mahoney from The Inquisitor dated March the 6th, of 2015, John Burroughs actually won a legal battle for the VA, the Veterans Affairs, to cover his medical costs, which were incurred because of his exposure to radiation from the UFO. Um, even the late Senator John McCain stepped up to assist him in this battle. So after more than 30 years of uh, being stonewalled, he now receives a full medical disability. The Burroughs is quoted as saying, I was not looking for anyone to believe me. All I have been concerned about was getting care for my illness. That was all that mattered. Uh, he also said that he is still trying to work out what it was he seen, um, which now is over 40 years ago. And he has said, I think this is a phenomenon the government is aware of, but are still trying to work out exactly what it is. Now, there have been other explanations offered for what the object may have been, uh, going back to that, beside the uh, Orfordness uh, lighthouse, one account given uh, suggests that the landing gear impressions were nothing but animal tracks. And in another, it was said that the British SAS, the Special Air Service, uh, was pulling a prank on the security forces at Woodbridge. These claims haven't stood up to scrutiny very well. 
Um, the one about the tracks appears to have uh, come from sources that did not actually see them. And the one SAS ended up being a hoax in and of itself after the Royal Air Force started an inquiry into possible misconduct of their personnel. And it resulted in, a, in, in being unfounded. So the questions we must ask are, why would these military officials thrust themselves into the limelight to be ridiculed in such a way? Uh, why create such a story knowing that it will one day be scrutinized under the microscope of the bunkers? And why would they lie in official military reports about what they saw when they knew full well the consequences for making a false statement? Yes, in, uh, in scrutiny and investigation has uh, definitely been put into this. Um, it has been pretty thoroughly looked at um, from a lot of angles. And you bring up a good point about the intrinsic preciseness of their accounts, which seem to have reliability, <clears throat> consistency, and repeatability. Of course, this can be said of a lot of testimony about anything, and it doesn't necessarily mean accuracy. Uh, there are people who say they have talked to Jesus and to the Virgin Mary and to their deceased relatives face-to-face -face with them, and they affirm it with complete confidence, steadfastness, and, and while being unshaken in their belief about it. But I would say with the Rendlesham matter that Holt, Penniston, and Burroughs and, and others like them would, would know that the scrutiny they would face, uh, the very technical and very pragmatic questioning uh, to which they'd be subjected by higher-ups repeatedly, and more than just one occasion, but it'd be an ongoing uh, set of interviews and, and interrogations. And because they're speaking for the armed services, uh, they represent the armed services. They are seeing this and reporting this on government time and it does involve national interest. So they could they just be trying to get attention and publicity? Yes, it's possible. Definitely possible. But Occam's razor seems to not show that as being the simplest answer. The simplest answer is that they did see something, unknown what. Yeah, and, and when people are trying to determine whether or not uh, this actually occurred, you have to take all of this into consideration. Now, based on the information at hand from over the past 40 years, do I believe they saw something otherworldly or unexplained phenomena? Yes, I do, personally. Now, do I believe it may have been elaborated upon and added and maybe subtracted, subtracted from? Yes, I do believe that as well. Now, do I agree with the naysayers that it was a complete hoax? Absolutely not. Uh, Colonel Holt is now in his 80s, and he still assertively claims that the incident was a real UFO encounter. Now, as we described earlier, uh, with just about anything, you have you will have those who will not believe and attempt to debunk it, even in those cases where the evidence is pretty solid and almost irrefutable. We see that with a lot of conspiracy theorists. You can show them the evidence and they say, oh, that's not evidence. <laughs> so um, I remember I remember at one time I saw video surveillance footage of about eight drug smugglers crossing the U.S. border from Mexico. Now, it was released to the public and eventually shown on YouTube. Now, I was absolutely amazed at how many people posted comments about it being nothing more than actors that the government had put into place to show fake border crossings. Man, I was so frustrated that people could be so naive and just I had to shake my head knowing that on a daily basis, I was out there arresting these guys for backpacking dope into the country. Um, I mean, just I had 21 of them in one day. 
Um, So I can see clearly why people behave and act the way they do by responding to things they do not want to believe. But, you know, my favorite adage is if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, well, then. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, It's very likely a duck. Uh, So most of most of us can find compelling reasons to believe that uh, it is a is possible that a, a real alien craft did land in Rendlesham Forest in 1980. Yet it is obvious that the evidence is still inconclusive. And as always, you, the audience, must consider the plausibility of this case and decide for yourselves if it is real, if it is a hoax, or if it is just mass delusion. Uh, That wraps up our show for today. So let us know what you think on our Facebook and Instagram pages. Do you agree or disagree with the veracity of the Rendlesham story? And please send us your questions and thoughts about it. Let us know if uh, you would like further explanation of anything on this topic. Yeah, and next week we're going to touch on an encounter that comes close to home for uh, me and Joe, um, as it pretty much took place right here in our own backyards in Arizona, and that is the famous Phoenix Lights. Uh, It was in 1997, so it occurred in very recent times, not something 40 or 75 years ago, and it was witnessed by thousands of people in multiple cities. Yeah, it was a very bizarre thing. Uh, it was quite a few years before I moved out here, but I heard the story. Uh, was it before you moved out here, Lori, or were you here in 1997? Yeah, I, I was here. I moved here in 95, but then I left and uh, uh, moved back to Canada for a couple of years. So the time that I would had moved to Canada, um, that's when it occurred. And then I moved back in 98 after that. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't actually move to Arizona until uh, 2001, like, really right after 9-11, uh, when I got assigned uh, to, to my duty location in the Air Force out here. Um, so, yeah, with the Phoenix Lights, uh, some say that it was several objects in a formation, and there are others say that it was actually really one very large object, like an Imperial Star Destroyer just cruising over the sky, over the cities of, of Phoenix and further down. Uh, towards the west of Tucson. Yeah, what a yeah, what a sight to be old uh, that night. Um, wish I was here to see that one. Um, there was tons of news coverage and tons of video footage. It was seen by thousands of people, and to this day, there is no explanation provided by the government except for flares. But it, like I said, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. So um, be sure to join us again next uh, next as we talk about the Phoenix Lights. Um, so thanks for being with us today and we hope uh, you enjoyed the topic. That's right. It's always a privilege to have you all with us for the show. So until next time, stay curious. And bye everyone. Uh, we look forward to being with you again for another fascinating episode of alien talk podcast. Uh, take care and have a safe week out there.